Good morning. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, the title of the message, I Won't Be a Christian Because. We're going to cover uh, three things. Really only one major thing is that what I want to talk about, we're in a series called uh, Can I Trust You? You know, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the book of Daniel? What does it have to say to me? And so we're going we're gonna to hit these, these three things, and the first two we're going to hit real quick. And then the final one we're going to linger more on because that's the one I really want to talk about. And the first kind of reason I won't be a Christian, many people say I won't be a Christian, is you know, I feel like I can't really trust the Bible. It's full of a bunch of stories and myths. And the reason I bring that up right here is because Daniel chapter 5, verse number 1, up until about 100 years ago, we didn't really have any references to this guy called King Belshazzar. So in Daniel 5.1, this is the way it starts out. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And the problem with that is, is like I just said, who is this guy? We don't know who this guy, where'd he come from? Uh, we've never heard of him before. There's no record of him. So, you know, historians, secular historians like Barosis or Eusebius or Josephus, all these guys, there was no record of this guy. And so a lot of times what we do when we hear about, you know, something like that, we say, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, Daniel's got this guy being the king of Babylon, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, although his time's up <laughs> in chapter 5. When we get to the end of chapter 5, he gets killed. The Medes and Persians come in and take over. All right. Where does this guy come from? And if I can't trust that Daniel, who's supposed to be like a major player in this kingdom, and he doesn't even know who the king is, can I, abs- can I trust this guy? So here's how the thing went. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled for about 40-some years. He led Babylon through the glory age. Right? He was this great builder. Guy was brilliant. Back in the day, the city of Babylon was the city in the entire world. And he died in 562 B.C. And there was a whole string of kings that came after him. So the next king, check out this guy's name. His son, his name was Evil Merodach. Now, what kind of parent would name their child Evil? I know sometimes we think about calling our children evil, you know. But he calls his son Evil Merodach. Evil Merodach was so evil that they assassinated the old boy. He only made it. A short time. And they assassinate him. And uh, the guy who assassinates him, his name is Neri Glisar. Now this guy lives four years. And then he just dies. Doesn't get assassinated. Boom, he dies. And his son, long name, Laboro Shorchad or something like that. I can't quite pronounce it. It's got 14 letters in this guy's name. He becomes king and he's just a child. He makes it nine months and they beat the kid to death. And the conspirators who did that, a group of them did that, one of the guy's names was Nabonidus. Nabonidus is one of the conspirators. And he is the king of Babylon, and he's the one that we know all about. So all the secular history tells us the last king of Babylon, when the Medes and Persians take over, when they come marching through on the Euphrates River, because the Medes and Persians had diverted it, and they come underneath the walls, because you can go through them, they went underneath the walls, and they, and they take over the city. We have no, who is this guy, Belshazzar? So what happened is, here's the way, just, just think about this, everybody. When you read things in the Bible that you don't understand, and all of us are going to have stuff that we're not going to understand about the Bible, right? We've come across stuff, you can, you can take one of two stances. Your stance is this over here. Okay, I don't understand this, so somehow the Bible must be wrong because I am more omniscient than the Bible. Or that's stance one. Or you come over here and say, I'm not omniscient. The Bible has all kinds of historical facts that I've found to be true. I'm just going to go with the fact that I haven't got enough information yet. So people who discounted and said, well, the Bible's full of myths over here, 
and they're discrediting Daniel. They took that stance. We never heard of Belshazzar. Who is this guy? About 100 years ago, the archaeologists discovered the Nabonidus Cylinder, and we had a tidal wave of references to a guy by the name of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Actually, Nabonidus' son, more than likely. Nabonidus lived way outside the city, 500 miles away, and he put his son second in command, king of Babylon. And we said, oh. So the people who discredited the Bible said, oh, my bad. Walked away. So I'm just saying, we have to be careful the way this stands. But that's not the number one reason that people tell me that they won't be a Christian. I always want to read a few verses to get some background here and uh, talk about a couple more things. So King Belshazzar, starting in verse number one. Oh, if you don't have a Bible, they've got this cool thing called version. I think we talked about it a few weeks ago. And uh, you can download that onto your iPhone or whatever else those things are, the whatever, right? So you can do that. I think it's totally free. Like this morning I came in, Daniel chapter 5, I just press a button and it'll just speak it to you. So you can just work out drive the car, whatever you want to do, speak it to you. So it's kind of cool. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. They were drinking a lot of wine. In the original language, it means they were getting blitzed. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple. Nebuchadnezzar is not his father. There was no word for grandfather. So he called him father. More than likely, Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. His father is Nabonidus. Okay? Moving on. So he, these gold you know, goblets are taken from the temple. This is from Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, chapter 1. So that his wives and his nobles and his concubines can drink with them. They brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and the nobles and the wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank, check this out everybody, verse 4, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, here's where it goes. Everybody, is any, everybody heard the saying, the writing is on the wall? Anybody ever heard that old saying, the writing is on the wall, right? Only a few of you have? Really? Oh, okay, there's a few more. Okay, That's, this, is, this is exactly where it comes from, right here. I see the handwriting on the wall, okay? Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale, and he was frightened. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I love the detail we get into here. You know what? Archaeologists, they excavated the old city of Babylon. They found this big, massive banquet room. And do you know what one of the walls was made of? Anybody want to take a guess what one of the walls was made of? And the big plaster. Now, who could have known that except for somebody who went in and out of that banquet room all the time, like Daniel, just like he said? It is absolutely amazing. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, whatever you want to say to us this morning, help us to hear that. Help us to be attentive to that. Uh, help us just to lock everything else out and just take these few moments and listen to maybe what your word might speak to our hearts and help us to react and respond uh, in a way that brings honor to your name. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so he sees the writing on the wall, on the plaster wall, just like the archaeologists have told us. He calls in all these people, hey, you know, can anybody help me out? All the, the magicians and the wise men and blah, blah, blah. And they say, you know what, we can't help you out. 
And so when he realizes they can't, that they can't help him out, he really freaks out. And he says his face turns even more pale. And then we're told the queen walks in. But she actually wasn't the queen queen. It wasn't his wife the queen, not King Belshazzar's wife. She was actually, in some of your versions say this, or there's a note at the bottom, like in my Bible, it says it's the queen mother. The queen mother comes in, more than likely Nebuchadnezzar's wife, comes in and says, hey, I want to remind you. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had this really wise guy. His name was Daniel. And he could help out in situations like this. You should call him in. Let's read this. It starts in verse 10. It says, the queen hearing this. So she's not in the banquet room. She's down the hall. They're having this big, wild time. And the handwriting on the wall. And then everybody freaks out. There's yelling and screaming. She hears it coming down the hall. So she comes running. What's going on? So the queen hearing this hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, comes into the banquet hall and says, Oh, king, live forever. Don't be alarmed! Exclamation point. Don't, don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. See, she kind of talks to him, you know, like, like he's a child, not like, like a wife. Although some people told me their wives talk to their husbands like a child. Uh, it doesn't happen for me, but I hear it happens in some homes. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Who, who, does that sound, does that ring a bell from last week? Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, the spirit of the gods is in you. She's saying the exact same thing. That's why it's probably his wife, and she was probably 30 or 40 years younger than King Nebuchadnezzar. It's good to be the king. Amen. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, appointed him king, and, um, chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners. This man, Daniel who the king called Belteshazzar. Don't, don't get confused here. Belteshazzar, with a T, is Daniel. It's his Babylonian name. We're talking about King Belshazzar. So I got confused over that for years. All right, so this guy was found to have keen knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and check this out, solve difficult problems. In the original language, solve difficult problems means he has the ability to untie knots. Do you have any knots in your life? God can help you to untie them, is what is being said right here. So he says, call him in. So they call him in, and he says to Daniel, hey, Daniel, I've heard all this good stuff about you. Can you help me out? And check out how Daniel responds to him. Normally, Daniel, all the time when he communicated with King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, oh, king, live forever. Very reverenced. Oh, king, live forever. You're awesome. You know, let me say a word to you, whatever. That's how he responded to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Daniel is now like in his 80s. All right, and it's late at night. Verse 18, he says, or verse 17, Then Daniel answered, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Is this, is this an old grumpy man or what? Has he gotten old on He's I mean, he's not happy at all. They've woke him up from sleep. He's come in. He doesn't like what's going on in the room. He doesn't like the fact that they're taking these goblets that are sacred to God and they're toasting them to the devil. Because that's what's going on in the room. He doesn't like it at all. He's angry. He's torqued off. And, 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 and Belshazzar said, look, I'm going to make you third in command. Now that we need to point this out. A lot of people say, why in the world would you make him third in command? That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. Well, Nabonidus is first in command outside of the walls of Babylon, 500 miles away. Belshazzar is what? Two in command. So the only spot he had to give him was third. So people say, I can't believe the Bible. Said, why would, they would never give... Third, well, it makes total sense now that we have all the information about Belshazzar and exactly how the reign was going. He was a co-regent to his father who lived outside the city. 
So why does Daniel react this way? Why does he say, hey, keep your gifts and keep your rewards? You know why? Because Daniel sees the writing on the wall, and he knows that Babylon is over. Matter of fact, it is this very night that the Medes and the Persians come through underneath the wall, and they kill Belshazzar. So he's saying to himself, why do I want to be third in the kingdom, a kingdom that has 15 minutes left on the clock? So he says, keep your gifts, keep your rewards. I'm going to explain this to you. Oh, uh, oh, most high, um, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty, greatness, and glory and splendor. Because of this high position, he gave him all the peoples and nations and men of every language, dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put them to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when King Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne. He was stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. We covered this last week. He lived with the wild donkeys. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until, here it comes. Why did all that happen to him? Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and He sets over them anyone He wishes. Okay, one of the second reasons that people tell me that they don't want to become a Christian is because they say, well, it's a little bit too exclusive. It's a little bit too narrow. What's happening here in Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar lives in a polytheistic nation, right? And he is a polytheistic person. There are many gods and there are many roads that lead in the right direction. And so God says, okay, um, we're going to solve that issue right now. You're going to become insane because of your arrogance and your pride for a while until you do this, until you say, God, you're God and I am not. You are number one. There is none like you. It's exclusive. You're all that. It's all you. It seemed right to him to say there's many ways that lead, right? It, but that was not the way of God. But look what it says here. I have the scripture for you on your outlines. Proverbs 16. There is a way that seems right to a man, but at the end it leads to death. To Nebuchadnezzar, the way he was going, he was a brilliant guy, it seemed right, but it ended in death. Proverbs 12 says almost the exact same thing. There's a way of life that looks harmless enough, but look again, take another look. It leads straight to hell. To us, it seems like, yes, it makes sense that there are many options. We like options. It makes sense to us. God speaking in Isaiah 55 says it this way, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we're not creating our own God. God is God, and then we're reacting to God. Nebuchadnezzar was creating his own God. It suited him fine. Okay, I think I'll take my God like this, and this, this is the way it will be. Right? Now, from a human perspective... When somebody comes along and says, Jesus Christ is the way, he is the way, from a human perspective, that seems really narrow. It seems very exclusive. That's the way it seems. That's the human perspective. Well, what if you took a divine perspective? What if you put yourself in God's shoes, right? You got up on the throne for a second, and you looked down at people on earth and said, they have a problem, and they can't solve it. I'm going to solve it for them. And the way I'm going to solve it is through my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to be the way. So from God's perspective, it's a very gracious act, right? Wouldn't you say so? From God's perspective, be very, very gracious. This is the way he's going to solve it. It'd be an arrogant on our part to say, I don't like the way you solve it. I think I'll, I'll take another way. Here's the thing. When I talk to people 
and this issue comes up about this narrowness, this exclusivity thing. And I'm only touch I'm only saying this to get, you know, some of you riled up because I can't fully get into this argument right now because this isn't the main reason why people don't want to become Christians. But here's the thing. I find that people aren't really put off by the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the only way. What they're put off by is by the arrogance of the person who is talking to them about it. Did that make sense? It's not really the message. It's more like the messenger. Does that make more sense? They're upset by the arrogance and the impatience of the person sharing the doctrine with them, the truth that Jesus Christ is the way. What invariably happens, if I feel like I have found the way over a period of time, I can become arrogant about finding that particular way. Jesus talks about this. I'm going to say one other thing, and then we're going to move on. Jesus talks a lot about this issue on the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. Phenomenal. Take time, go back, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. It's fantastic. Toward the end of the sermon, he says something very important. He says, broad is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life. Just before he said that, everything's in context. You can't just parachute into those verses in this full sermon and think that we're going to understand it. So we've got to go in and understand what's being said around it. So what does he say right before that? He talks about judging other people. He talks about don't look at somebody else and look at the speck in their eye. And he says, when you have a whole lumberyard... He actually uses those words, a whole lumberyard in your own eye. Now, check this out for just a second, everybody. People who are on the broad way, when they, when they communicate to somebody that Jesus Christ is the way or when they have a problem with anything, they'll say, you know what, our world has a problem or you have a, you have a problem because you need to get your life figured out. The problem with our world is these people over here. If these people over here would change, if you would do something, if you give your life to Christ, you'd stop sinning or whatever, everything would get straightened out. Those are people who are on the broad way. The people who are on the true narrow way say, the problem is not those people over there. Our world isn't going to hell because of those people over there. That's not why we're not, that's why we're not going to hell. It's not because some people in America have a certain way of life, and that's why our America's in trouble, because those people over there, their beliefs, their habits, uh, you know what the problem are, what the world is? The problem is me. The problem is me. People who are on the genuine, narrow way say, I figured out what the problem is. It's not somebody else. It's me. I don't need Jesus Christ to rock this world and save this planet. I need Jesus Christ to rock me and save me. Is that making sense? That's narrow way thinking. Broadway thinking is very arrogant. And what I find is, is that people aren't so much turned off that Jesus Christ is the only way. They're turned off with the messenger who presents it in an extremely arrogant way. I only a couple seconds of that. Uh, more on that later. I don't know when. As soon as I figure out more, I'll share more. All right. So I just want to say that real quick. Uh, that's not the biggest reason people tell me they won't be Christians. Here, my friends, is the number one reason that people say to me, John, I will not, I will not become a Christian because what? They say this. 
There are people in parts of this world who have never even heard the name Jesus Christ. And they're going to be judged, condemned, and they're going to hell because information that they never have, and that's completely unfair. And I say, well, who told you that? Well, a guy on the TV said that. Or I went to church one time. Or I knew somebody who told me that. There, there are people in the world. And I say, well, what about the people who never heard of Jesus Christ? These people had in this conversation. What about, and they say, well, they're going to hell. That seems unfair, doesn't it? And so I have people that say to me, I'm never going to be, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. That's it. I say, you don't want to have anything to do with Jesus because of somebody over there who's never heard anything about Jesus. That's right. Number one reason. People tell me they won't be a Christian because people don't have information and they're being judged for information that they never have. So I want to take just a couple minutes, if I can, and talk about knowledge. What does Jesus Christ have to say about information? What does he have to say about this point? All right? So here we go. I got a couple fill in the blanks for you. The first one is this. Knowledge means guilt or it equals guilt. This is Jesus speaking in John 15:22 and here's what he has to say about this issue. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Jesus is saying if I had not come and shared information with them. Now that they have the information, they're guilty. But before they had the information, they weren't guilty. This is what Jesus is saying. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Oh, my goodness. He's saying the exact opposite thing of what was being said a few moments ago. What is that all about? Once we know, once we have information, then we have to act upon it. And if we don't act upon that information in a correct way, then we are guilty. But before we have the information and we're completely ignorant... I don't know. That's God to judge that whole situation. Now, I want to give you an example, okay? I had a life-changing moment happen to me a number of years ago. It completely transformed my theology on this point. I was standing in a grocery store, and I was about nine years old. I went to the grocery store about every single week with my mother. Now, who remembers the large Brock's candy with the big tubs of candy? Does anybody remember in the grocery store the big tubs of Brock's candy? few of you do? Okay. Then those of you who remember are going to really get something out of this. So big tubs of Brock's candy. My idea up until this critical moment at nine years of age was that candy, I mean, who would put big with no lids on it just hanging there unless it was free, right? So what I would do is we'd go in there. I mean, that's the first thing I did. We got sort of visited the Brock's candy. I got a big handful and I ate it. And if mom took a long time getting groceries, I Paid a second visit to it, and I just went back there multiple times, and I stuffed some in my pocket, and I had a great time. It was wonderful. It was a beautiful life. There's nothing wrong with my life at that point. And one day, we're just coasting by the Brock's candy, and my mom says, you know, Johnny, those aren't free. Are you serious? My world came tumbling down. Now I had information. Now I had knowledge. And I can remember, as if it was yesterday, I'm standing in front of the Brock's candy, all this candy there, and now I have this new information. What am I going to do with it? I, can I dip down and have more? And I'm thinking to myself, well, what does mom know? Does she own this grocery store? She doesn't know anything. 
how is this any different? I mean, five seconds ago, I had no knowledge. Nothing has changed. Can't I just pretend and go backwards as if I'd never heard of that? Like if somebody came along and said, like, God, you know what you're doing is stealing. I said, yeah, but I really didn't know it. Yeah, but she told you. But I don't really, I couldn't. Maybe I misunderstood the words. So I'm going over this, but I could not shake it once I had the knowledge. And I did dip my hand in again, in case you're wondering. I was guilty. And every time I went back, I felt guilty until I was tired of feeling guilty. And I acted upon the knowledge I had. And then I stopped dipping into the Brock's candy. I owe some grocery store money somewhere. Right? Knowledge brings guilt. That's the first thing I want you to know from the words of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing I want you to know about knowledge. From the words of Jesus Christ. Knowledge means responsibility. Once we have knowledge, God holds us responsible to do something with the knowledge that we have. So here we got Jesus Christ. Now, he is just laying out a bunch of towns. He is, he is just ramped up. He says, then Jesus criticizes the cities where he did most of his miracles. Check this out. We're talking about miracles. Because the people did not change their lives and stop sinning. He said, how terrible for you, Chorazin. How terrible for you, Bethsaida. Those are two cities, all right? If the same miracles I did in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two other cities, those people would have changed their lives a long time ago. They would have worn rough cloth and put on ashes on themselves to show they had changed. They would have mourned what it's saying. Verse 22. But I tell you, on the judgment day, it's going to be better for Tyre and Sidon than it is for you. And you, Capernaum, another city, you'll be lifted up to heaven. No, you're going to be thrown down to the depths. If the miracles I did in you had it happened in Sodom, that's speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, its people would have stopped sinning and it would be still be a city today. But I tell you on the judgment day, it's going to be better for Sodom than it is for you. So let's back up. What is going on here? He's saying, I got some cities. He's going into these cities and he's doing a bunch of miracles. And then he's giving them information about the kingdom of God. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about how we live our lives and a way to honor God. And he's doing these miracles to validate. So let's talk about a second about miracles and validation. Some people say, you know what? I can't believe in the parting of the Red Sea. I can't believe in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going through the fire. I can't believe in all these miracles I read about in the Bible because I don't see them today. Like, I haven't seen anybody go down the Potomac River and part it. I haven't seen somebody come through fire. I haven't seen these miracles, so I have a hard time believing them. They seem like they're just crazy. I mean, just a piece of information on this. What we see in the Scripture, and the Bible talks about this all over the place, is that miracles are done to validate the information that is given. So when you have a people who have very little information, you see God do supernatural things to validate the new information they're learning. Does that make sense? So in areas of the world today where they have very little information about this book that we so freely hold in our hands, right? What you find is you hear that all kinds of miracles are going on. Now, does that mean that miracles can't go on here? No. What it probably means is, is maybe we're not acting upon the information we already have. But that's, a, that's, that's, that's another point in the message we'll get to later. What Jesus Christ is saying right here is he's saying, this city over here, I shared information with them. And they were completely irresponsible with it. And so they're going to be judged mightily because they did absolutely nothing with information. So, so, so check this out. He's not saying judgment's going to fall upon the ignorant, remember? I'm worried about those people in some country that never heard the name of Jesus and they're being condemned going to hell. He's not saying that. He's saying is judgment is going to happen for the people who know 
who have the knowledge and have done absolutely nothing with it. I got one more point to make. Knowledge means expectation. God has an expectation. Luke 12, 48, the words of Jesus Christ, to whom much is given, much will be required. To whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. The more I know, the more God expects from me. So, the number one reason, everybody, that people have told me personally, this is not scientific, this is just people coming to me, talking over the course of my life, the number one reason that people said to me, I'm not going to become a Christian. I'm not going to become a Christian because there's people somewhere who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ and they're being condemned and that's not fair and I don't want any part of it. So, that whole argument, that whole argument is done. We just washed it away. We just got rid of it. One foul swoop. Because Jesus Christ said, nope, it's not how it works. I don't care what the televangelist said. He can, whatever, go wherever. Okay, we're done with him. He's out. He's wrong. Jesus says, I'm the final voice on this. This is not how it works. So we're completely done. So if you know of anybody that way, or you've felt that way before, yes, that doesn't seem right to me, okay, then that problem's completely gone. Isn't that cool? But we've exchanged it for a much bigger problem. A much bigger problem, don't we? We have a huge problem now. Because now we're not talking about somebody over in Timbuktu somewhere that doesn't know anything. Now we're talking about us right here. At Thomas Jefferson Middle School Gymnasium with the Bible. And we all have some information. Some of us have a little bit, and some of us have a ton. And the problem is, is now it's very personal. And now we're talking about, uh-oh, I'll have a good time. I had a good time talking about the people over in Timbuktu and saying, I, Jesus, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because that's not fair. But now you're talking about me, and now I'm guilty because I have knowledge. And I have a responsibility, and I have expectation. And this is where it gets really tough, isn't it? Here's the thing I want you to fill out. Once I know, I must act. Once I know something, then I must act upon it. And if I don't, I'm shrieking my irresponsibility. I'm being, I'm being irresponsible. I, I, I'm, 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 my own guilt is coming upon me. God has an expectation. I have to do something with the knowledge that I have. You know, this brings just to like new life the saying ignorance is bliss, doesn't it? Ignorance is bliss. It would be a wonderful thing to be ignorant. Now, I meet a lot of people who say to me that they don't believe in Jesus. People say to me, I don't believe in God. People tell me that they're atheists. And you know what? The vast majority of them, I don't believe. Years ago, I believed them. I believed it when they said, I'm an atheist. I believed it when they said, I don't believe in Jesus. I believed them. Most of them now, they say that to me, I don't believe it anymore. And I, it's because I've had numerous conversations to the point. I had a conversation with a guy one time. He was telling me how he was an atheist. And as he was, he kind of had a little smile out of the side of his face. And I knew what that meant. And eventually, he knew what it meant too. He was trying not to believe in God. But deep down, he really believed in God. I had a heated conversation with a young lady one time. She was telling me how she's an atheist. And then later on, when we kind of really went after it theologically, she made a mistake. She said she was praying. And I said, well, what are you doing praying if you're an atheist? She said, uh, you caught me. What I find is most people who tell me they don't believe in Jesus and most people tell me they don't have enough information or knowledge or most people say, I, deep down, they actually really do believe. People who say to me, John, i got a character issue at work. You know, I'm not really sure what to do about it. And I say, are you sure you don't know what to do about it? They say, yeah, I do. I just want to act like I don't. 
people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this uh, sexual issue. It's kind of a gray area thing. I'm not really sure what's right and wrong, what's right in God's eyes. I say, are you sure you don't know what's right and wrong in God's eyes? Uh, no, I guess actually I do. Uh, taxes. Should I put this on, on this form or whatever? Is that okay? Or is it okay not to tell the IRS about this? What do you think? How about tithing? Oh, man, I've had wonderful discussions about tithing. People say Jesus never preached about tithing. It's not in the Bible. It's not, but you don't have to tithe anymore. Tithing's not all this kind of stuff. If you have never heard the word tithing, don't ask anybody. This is where ignorance is totally bliss. In actuality, you can feel it in the conversation. We do know. We have lots of information. We're just pretending, ignoring, rationalizing, figuring out some way, some loophole around it, how it can't really be true. There's so many issues just like this. The Bible says we should forgive people. We should pray for our enemies. We should not become bitter. We should become better. I had an altercation with a guy years ago on soccer field. And I know what the Bible says. I should pray for him. I did. Oh, God, please help me to run into that guy on some alley somewhere with nobody around and no people who know me from church or just never seen me before. I'm just going to lay him out. Right? I know what's right. I just didn't want to act upon it. Or you go into a restaurant, right, for those of us who have kids, and you know the kids, the kids' prices, it's supposed to stop, like, at the age 12. And for some stupid reason, this restaurant has the deal where it stops at the age 10. And you say, oh, but it should stop, and they look like they're 10 years old. You know what I'm saying? We rationalize these issues. Dishonoring people. The Bible says we should not dishonor people. We should not dishonor our wives or our husbands or our co-workers or the fellow commuters on the roads with us. We should not do that. But they're a jerk and they cut me off. Right. What are we doing with the information that we already have? The Bible says we should not get drunk. But Jesus turned the water into wine. But he didn't get blitzed. We have the information. We shouldn't be impatient, which I am all the time. We should not get angry. We should flee the very appearance of wrongdoing. Somebody called me a couple weeks ago, and they said something to me about themselves. They didn't mean it. They were serious in a serious way, right, Giving, sharing information about themselves. But it was the most crazy thing they were telling me. It was the funniest thing they were telling me. My first reaction when I hung up the phone is I wanted to call everybody who also knew this person. Because it would be such a wonderful... You ever just laughed and you just felt good all over as you laughed? You know what I'm saying? It would be that kind of laugh. It was so... But there's a way to tell something about somebody else where they can laugh about it too. This wasn't one of those situations. If I was to share this information with other people, this would make this other person look really, really bad. I wanted to gossip so bad. Oh, man, I just wanted to gossip so bad about this person. And I'm like, well, God, I could tell these other people this stuff about this person. They probably already know it, right? They probably already know it. I could say, you already heard what so-and-so did. And they say, no, I hadn't heard anything about that thing is is that we already have information what are we doing with the information we already have and here's why one thing i want us all to remember today what do you know that you need to act upon today 
What is it that you already know that you need to act upon today? Look at verse 22, Daniel chapter 5. To me, it's the most important verse in all of Daniel 5. He says, But you, his son, O Belshazzar, Daniel speaking, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Though you had all this information, you did nothing with it. What's the difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar? God gave all kinds of room and leniency to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet Belshazzar comes along, he blows it for a couple of years, and God just... He's gone. He's wiped out. You know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was like an infant. He knew nothing. He had very little information. And Belshazzar had a lot of information. And with information and knowledge comes a greater responsibility. And he did absolutely nothing with it. So let me wrap up with this. Let's go back to the banquet. Remember, they're having this big banquet. And they're taking these gold articles from the temple in Jerusalem. These gold articles that have been consecrated to God. or sacred to God. And they're toasting the devil with it. Toasting the devil. So in Leviticus chapter 8, we're told that Moses took those articles and he prays for them. He sets them apart and consecrates them. Now they're holy. They're holy to God. And they're toasting the devil with these holy things in an unholy way. What are those gold articles today? What is holy to God today? Are cups and bricks and mortar, are they holy to God? You know what God tells us so clearly in the Bible is holy today? 1 Peter 2.9. I have it here. There's a number of other places it tells us the same thing. It says, you... You who are followers of Jesus Christ, those of you who have committed your lives to be followers of Jesus Christ, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. You and I, if we're followers of Christ, we are those gold cups now. And when God gives us information and we don't act upon that information, we are toasting the devil with our very lives. So what we need to think about this morning is what do I need to act upon today that God has already given me information about that I have failed to act so far? What do you need to act upon? What is it that you need to do? God's given you all the information. You got it. Oh, but I need more information. No, you got all the information you need. I have all the information I need. Now it's just time for action. What is it that you need to act upon? Some of us might say when it comes to salvation, you know what, I need more information about Jesus. Maybe you have all the information you need right now. I need more information to stop doing this or to start doing this. You have all the information you need. You just need to act. Today is a day of action. Today is a day we say, you know what, I'm done with ignoring my responsibility. I'm done with ignoring my guilt. God has an expectation of my life. He's given me this knowledge. He's given me this information. I'm going to act upon it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you for your kindness and your love and your patience with us. I want to ask, Father, each one of us here, you want to do great things in every one of our lives. You want to lead us down a path that is fruitful and full of life. It's a life of blessing. You have nothing but the best in mind for us, and you give us knowledge. Help each one of us today the courage and the resolve to act upon what we need to act upon right now to act upon the knowledge that you've already given us, to make a commitment to do that so that, God, we can be where you want us to be. Help us to do that, Father. Each one of us, in Christ's holy name. Amen. The music team's going to play just real quick, just a few moments. They're going to play kind of instrumental. You have just a few seconds, just a few moments to sit here uh, and think about maybe what God might speak to your heart from the Word. Uh, Our prayer team is always over here.
I don't know about you, but I always need a prayer boost. If you want somebody to pray with you about something, they're going to be right over here. Do it. But let's just take a few moments to reflect on maybe what God might say to each one of us.